Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. This is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and I'm lucky to be joined today by Mona Harb and Ahmed Harbieh. Uh, Mona is a professor of urban studies and politics at the American University of Beirut, and Ahmed is an assistant professor of graphic design, also at AUB. Both of them are also members of the fantastic Beirut Urban Lab, um, and the lab was sort of the, the locus for collaboration on the MELG paper that we'll be discussing today, uh, which Mona and Ahmed co-authored with other members of the lab. And the paper looks at the, the territorial and political variations of pandemic response in Lebanon, and as part of MELG's upcoming special issue on governing in the MENA amidst COVID. Mona, Ahmed, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I'm, I'm really excited to, to discuss your article, but before we jump into that, maybe, um, maybe Ahmed, would, would you like to share a little bit of background about Lebanon's experience with COVID and, and the context in which it emerged? Uh, yes, of course. The period of the pandemic, in fact, coincided with a very particular period in Lebanon. Of course, since the end of 2019, there has been a series of uprisings and uh, social movements in response to the deteriorating financial crisis. This, in fact, was a huge sort of sea change, if you wish, in the Lebanese political and public spheres, which has uh, created a very particular condition whereby COVID came in to a, quite an unusual episode in Lebanon's recent history. So, in fact, it was a kind of a compounded series of crises. You know, I think this is a very good way to start because our approach to, to research regarding all things Beirut and Lebanon recently has been very mindful of this idea of the compounded crises. So any kind of contextualization of conditions on the ground uh, requires really this, this multifaceted way of looking at these different episodes and the way that they relate to each other and fuel each other and feed off each other. So I would say, yes, in terms of when the pandemic uh, hit. Uh, Lebanon was undergoing um, a kind of a political crisis, a financial crisis, a deterioration in uh, living conditions, uh, a rapid elimination of the middle class, which is, of course, something that is not new, but has been um, expedited, if you wish, or further fueled and intensified during that period. And with that came, of course, basically an increase in, uh, in poverty. And we have to also remember that this is happening, you know, after a number of years of an increased refugee influx from Syria. So in terms of context, we're talking about really multiple layers that complexify the situation. And I hope I kind of painted a, a picture of that. Yeah, for sure. No, thank you very much for setting out that context. And uh, Mona, would you like to add, to add anything to that? Ahmed covered uh, a lot of the key issues. Maybe I'll just highlight the high levels of excitement that were associated with the uprisings and the political mobilizations of October 2019, which opened up a realm of possibilities on the political scene and the social scene that were unprecedented in terms of their scale and their connections territorially with each other, which materialized in many solidarities between groups and uh, what some observers described at the time as the uh, consolidation of a society and of social bonds 
accounts that uh, were definitely, I mean, this is not coming out of the uh, blue and it's a, it's a historical legacy of several moments of struggle and episodes of protest in the political history of Lebanon since I would say 2005 at least. So that, that was a, a very interesting moment against which COVID came because with the repression that uh, this political mobilization faced, the, the virus itself was a very good uh, excuse that was leveraged by the authorities to continue and consolidate uh, their repression mechanisms. So this is what I would add to that context that uh, led us to write this paper. It was very much born from that moment where we were observing um, a series of modalities deployed by the political uh, state, I mean, by the political regime, but also its uh, extended networks. And we were almost, we were almost watching in disbelief this, these modalities unfold. Uh, in parallel to many others that were being put in place to thwart the uh, the uprisings. Yeah, for sure. And 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 thank you for bringing up that point because globally, COVID has acted as an opportunity for states to to reassert control. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could speak to how that has played out in Lebanon. You know, how is how has COVID affected existing dynamics? You know, particularly those relating to sectarianism. Well, um, I would say part of the uprisings included appropriation of public and open spaces and abandoned buildings and infrastructural sites. So there were a lot of presence in the city and in towns of uh, protesters that took over uh, sections of streets, of sidewalks, parkings, roundabouts. And the pandemic, because it was associated with, you know, the need to stay home, uh, with lockdowns, the political uh, elites immediately used this as an excuse to destroy these uh, appropriations or these tent cities or these, uh, I mean, there were not cities, but these, I mean, all the the existence of physical uh, uh, manifestations of uprisings and protesters. So the destruction was very much legitimized by the health narrative, even though, you know, we had destructions before by uh, by uh, sectarian um, thugs uh, that destroyed the same sites. So now it was the police destroying these sites, and there was an order, an official order to do that. And it was, of course, accompanied by this narrative of health and hygiene. Uh, now, maybe for the listeners who are not familiar with the Lebanese uh, political system, we're talking here about the political system that is modeled according to a, what uh, the literature refers to as a consociational model, so a power-sharing model that distributes power to, to main sects, and this distribution of power assigns a sect to the president of the republic, who has to be a Maronite, to the head of the government, who needs to be a Sunni, and to the head of the parliament who should be a Shi'i. And this was a power arrangement that was put in place in the 1920s under the French mandate, following up Saïd uh, uh, Picot. It's a very long and charged history, and that was reformulated in '43 with the at the time of the independence of uh, the Lebanese Republic, and after the civil war in 1990 with the Taif Agreement that reshuffled again power and gave more power to Muslim sects and made it more of what has been referred to as a tripartite distribution of power. So this distribution of power is also exists 
across public administrations, but also it exists across the private sector. So there are alliances that happen between political elites and business elites and banking elite and um, social groups and families. Uh, so it's not only sectarian, many variables come into play, including class, including generational uh, configuration and geographies. So uh, geographies also play a big role in these variations. And so we have this complex landscape of power configurations. And when we have a crisis or when we have a tensions or conflicts, like Ahmad was saying earlier, we are in a context where these conflicts and tensions never stop. I mean, they take different degrees of violence, but they are always there. And according to place and stake and time, the configurations of power gets reshuffled. So with the pandemic, we saw that there's an alliance between the sectarian political groups that were being threatened by the uprising, who came together and wanted to consolidate their power together. So there was an agreement that this health pandemic is a very good leverage. We can leverage it to advance our power in our territories, our strongholds that have been put in place since the civil war, because most of these political leaders are warlords and extensions of uh, militia uh, men and networks that were put in place during the civil war of Lebanon uh, and who got together after the civil war without a transitional justice agreement or without any form of uh, accountability and who maintained their same forms of power, which was very much related to territorial uh, control. So uh, it's a very long answer. I'm going to stop here. But um, I mean, I'm happy to develop if, you, if you'd like me to. No, that's perfect. Thank you. And you mentioned the geographies of this conflict and, and the warlords controlling those geographies. So I was wondering if you could maybe... Speak to how COVID has affected the, the spatiality of this sectarian conflict. Sure. So these strongholds, you know, they have unseen borders that demarcate the territories and indicate where they start and where they end. So with COVID, what happened is that because of the constraints of lockdown, people started wanting to control the entries and the exits of these territories and these borders. So they set up checkpoints in some places, depending on, I would say, the density of the sectarian control in these territories. So checkpoints were set up. Sometimes we also had like hygienic points in, uh, in some neighborhoods where you had tents distributing medical kits and hygienic kits and information brochures. And these points that were mostly established in open areas or parkings or corners of streets, they were marked iconographically with flags, with territorial markings that indicate that this is a place for this political group or this religious group, knowing that religious groups and political groups are associated to each other in many cases or not necessarily. So you would have a geography of competition or complementarity depending on the place. You also had some sites where we had circulation of uh, trucks who would circulate and uh, disinfect streets. And sometimes uh, we documented instances where streets were disinfected twice by two competing political groups. So a bit of uh, absurdity in that sense of where you really feel that, you know, that uh, what's happening is a marking of the territory, a claiming of this territory by these political and sectarian groups. So uh, these are a few examples. I don't know if Ahmed probably remembers uh, others. I would just um, 
build up a little bit on the previous answer regarding the opportune moment of, uh, of COVID right after the social movement uh, period that, uh, that was taking place in Lebanon and all the taking to the streets is that there's something very interesting about how the social movement or movements depended on two particular things to operate, which is access to public space and cross-area mobility, right? So that a, a kind of a, a mm. network was forming across cities. And it's almost like a silver platter kind of, uh, kind of moment when the expected measures had to do with restricting access to public space and access to mobility uh, when it came to uh, implementing COVID measures by the state. So in fact, I guess I'm going back to this to say that this is fundamentally a spatial practice and what we were studying was fundamentally a spatial condition. In terms of particular ways in which these manifested, I would say, yes, the, the kind of the iconography aspect, the kind of resurfacing of the physical landscape as a space for playing out rhetoric was probably one of the more interesting things to notice. Because mostly our research actually has to do with scanning a media landscape or maybe even a statistical landscape. But spatially, there was, especially after the uprising, when uh, when a lot of these uh, tactics uh, subsided a little bit, it was a moment when we, we saw a surfacing, a resurfacing of that in a more um, a visible and, um, and prominent manner. Yeah, that's really interesting and, and touches on, you know, the key discussion in the article around the different responses to COVID, you know, among sectarian and, and non-sectarian actors. I was wondering if, if, could you explain, you know, how those responses differed? I think I can, I can maybe outline a little bit the distinctions that were drawn out of this research and Mona, you can maybe build up on that. Mm. So we tried to create a kind of a categorization system for the different actors that were at play in this scenario. And we um, largely divided them into what we describe in the paper as top-down actors and bottom-up actors. Top-down actors being the sectarian political groups themselves and these, of course, are affiliated to particular factions of the state, certain supporting municipalities in particular geographies, but also a series of affiliated foundations and, and organizations. So this is the kind of top-down network, if you wish, that we described, but we also folded under that the international NGO uh, operations as well. And the bottom-up would be the more community-based, uh, local NGOs, uh, and other types of, of actually quite diverse forms of, of organization. And Mona perhaps can talk a little bit more about that. But, but these constituted basically the other group. And uh, as the paper describes, there were three main ways in which we distinguished these, op these two different types of operations that had to do with, obviously, the scale and scope of the interventions or the responses to COVID. Um, and then other things that are more operational that have to do either with the funding networks that support these activities, but also a very particular relationship to what we call an actor-client nexus, which is approaching an already existing network of supporters uh, versus reacting to need on the ground. And largely, this is how I would draw uh, this distinction. So this is basically the, the main difference that we could see uh, on an operational level. Uh, interestingly speaking, geographically, we notice that there's a predominance of Group 1, which is the top-down, um, the INGO and the sectarian political 
parties based on our, you know, admittedly limited sample. But it, I mean, even though it was a small sample uh, and for a short period of time, it clearly shows that there is a there's there's a bigger quantity, if you wish, and there's a much bigger presence of of the top down uh, actors vis-a-vis the responses to COVID during that period. But that said, these, if you if you want these moments of uh, infiltration that kind of try to diversify these territorialities a little bit and create this you know this flip side to the story, uh, also existed across geographies on the Lebanese territory, even though compared to the number of responses to Group One, um, it was clearly an, an imbalance in the in the responses to to COVID. Uh, would you like to add anything on there, Mona? Yeah, actually, I'm listening to Ahmed and thinking about, you know, the peculiarity of also the landscape in Lebanon, where we don't have numbers about anything. The last uh, census in Lebanon dates back to 1932. And, you know, to, to bring it back to what we said in the in the beginning about the uprising, uh, during the uprising, there was this big visibility of opposition groups across the Lebanese geography that made a lot of people say, wow, the, you know, the opposition groups are dominant, uh, the government needs to relinquish power, and the government was saying that, you know, you don't represent everybody, we, we also represent another part of the Lebanese, and nobody, you know, knew how much of the political elites, uh, how dominant they are, how hegemonic they are, who are the opposition groups, are they a minority or not? And now listening to Ahmad, I think one of the things we, we found very interesting in this uh, project together is when we, we took the sample and started counting that we came up with this uh, proportion of two-thirds of political groups or you know dominant actors and one-third of the other groups that we were arguing were trying to approach the political landscape in a different way, that they were at least experimenting, not to say that they do have a radical opposition or, you know, or they are progressive. It's really hard to make that claim, but at least they're doing something differently than these hegemonic groups and they're seeking for a political change. And that proportion was, uh, I remember that for us, it was like, wow, there is a hegemony here that's very clear, two third, one third. And it made me at this time remember uh, the score of uh, Beirut Madinati in the municipal elections of, of 2016, which garnered around one third of the votes in Beirut. And if, if that's an indicative of anything, we had an, again that one third. And, uh, you know, uh, now we're doing another study where we're also counting actors responding to uh, the recovery after the explosion, and we are leaning towards, I mean, it's less than half, but we're leaning towards a one-third, maybe a 40% of non-sectarian groups. So so there's something interesting with that proportion that I think we are able to identify in this paper and that uh, tells us a little bit about the, the hegemonic weight of these sectarian actors and their presence in the public sphere and on the ground in managing a crisis and controlling the political environment and the social environment that goes with it. However, what we also think is very important to document, and we spent a lot of time doing it, is that the actions of the non-sectarian groups, and here we're saying non-sectarian with a lot of uh, caution, because again, I mean, the methodology for this paper, I find it quite interesting because we were not able to do any fieldwork for this method, for this paper. We, we relied a lot of, on available sources from media and from 
from uh, social media network, I mean, social media websites and the media sources that were available to us and, um, and even TV shows that we were able to follow. But we were not able to verify this information with uh, interviews or, uh, you know, additional methods of validation. But still, we were able to identify modalities of intervention to manage the COVID crisis that were indicative of solidarity values, of uh, equality values, uh, justice, of wanting to be together, of dealing with people as active agents rather than just passive recipients of aid, capacity building in some cases. That's why we're really struggling to name this group because we were seeing things that were experimentally on a political, uh, from a political lens, uh, quite progressive, but not everyone was like that. I mean, we had also more traditional NGOs operating or people uh, operating because of uh, private interest, maybe not immediate, but, you know, more like as part of a marketing strategy. I'm thinking of banks sponsoring certain campaigns, for instance. But we also had these collectives and some NGOs and university actors and some campaigns that were quite noteworthy. And we only you know, mention them briefly in the paper, but I think this is also an invitation for others, other researchers, other people out there who are interested in these types of mobilizations, of these types of political organizing to document these groups. And many of those, and I think this is also a a point I wanted to raise, uh, we had seen some of them mobilized during the uprisings. And there were these these types of modalities. We had observed them in the collective kitchens that were put in place uh, at the time of the uprising, for instance, and types of solidarity networks that we saw among protesters. So there was a resonance with what had happened in 2019. And I think it goes back to even earlier and that we could see again uh, in the aftermath of the port explosion that, you know, at the time of writing the paper, it was after the, the blast, we, we were able to trace some of this. And we thought that, you know, if we had more time and resources to develop this in a project, we, this is where we'd like to go. In fact, if I may just add some of the actors, Muna, that you mentioned uh, having operated prior to the, to the COVID mm. uh, crisis, uh, in fact, also con- where the same actors identified in our post-blast work, some of mm. the some of the same uh, organizations, in fact, uh, have uh, continued to work until today in, in different capacities. And one thing to be said also about this one-third, two-third kind of persistent, you know, uh, proportional distribution that we were seeing over and over again. I mean, yes, of course, it speaks to a clear hegemony of the political parties, but it also is not a small number, given that given the context of Lebanon. I would, uh, yeah, just want to to point that out. Yeah, I agree. I think it depends on one's positionality in the landscape of, uh, you know, prospects of uh, political change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and of course, you you started this research before the port blast. And so I, I was wondering, how how the dynamics have, have changed since? You know, if you were going to continue on with the research, how do you think the port blast, dyna- like the post-blast dynamics and also the vaccine rollout dynamics would interplay with what you observed? Mm, I would love to have the time and resources to answer this question. <laughs> you know, um, this, is a, this is a project that happened in the lab 
very much like you know prompted by our intellectual curiosity and our ob observation of uh, these trends and these dynamics and we were like we cannot not document this we had no funding to do this so we really took time from our uh, other projects to 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 do this work and it was very violently interrupted uh, by the august blast we w we wanted to continue the mapping until the end of august and uh, we thought like okay we cannot sustain this project any longer let's stop at the end of august and then you know we uh, this is an interesting methodology we have a dashboard we'll put it out there and then we'll see if we get support for it we can develop it and then august 4 happened and you know we moved to much more urgent issues and uh, we it was i would say a feat to to have this project out. It wasn't easy to work on it. Um, it's much more um, demanding and emotionally heavy issues. So, uh, you know, at that time, COVID became, uh, and it, it coincided also with the economic and financial collapse that was aggravating throughout the months of covid uh, especially that summer prior to the to the explosion so so covid became and we often used to say that that the least of the worries of a lot of lebanese people and i mean and lots of residents of lebanon not only lebanese i mean it was like people were worried about much more things than uh, protecting themselves from from the virus uh, with the blast it became even worse that sense of like we have so much more to worry about and we could clearly see it I mean, uh, with people going to the hospital amidst COVID bathed in their blood and no one um, being able to to uh, apply COVID regulations, etc. So, uh, so I, I think that was a very heavy uh, interruption, even, you know, as researchers, when you live something like this and you're a citizen of the city where this happened, this research becomes almost like you wonder if about its importance and its relevance at this stage. So we wrapped it up quite quickly and we said maybe other people can pick it up, maybe people who are in the health field. But at the same time, I think the value of this research is an intersection with the political geography dimension. And I still think it has a lot of value. And this is, you know, why I was saying I wish we would find a niche for it. Uh, it also coincided with the, with the start of the vaccination rollout, because I think at that time, uh, Luna Dayek, one of the co-authors of this paper, uh, started, we would start having conversation about mapping what was happening on the vaccination scene. And at the start of the vaccination um, rollout in Lebanon, uh, vaccines arrived to political uh, elites and sectarian groups. So we started hearing about vaccines being administered by people close to Hariri because Hariri got the Sputnik vaccine on a private jet from Saudi. And we started hearing about another, uh, you know, a rich guy who's close to the Aounis who got it also from the Emirates, right? He also maybe got the Chinese one. And I remember, you know, as a citizen thinking that I'll never get the vaccine this way. I have no network to any of these sectarian networks and these clientelistic networks, I'm not going to be vaccinated. And then we heard that the public um, hospital, the Ministry of Public Health, started discussing that they're getting vaccines and about their plan for vaccination rollout. And I was in complete disbelief that they will never do it. And it will never happen through the public sector. And at the time, there were uh, echoes about the vaccine being provided in a public hospital in the south of Lebanon by the Nabih Birri network. And it was giving it to people in his own village.
Mona Fawaz, the other co-author of the paper, was telling us about this because she was from the same town and, you know, she was invited to go take the vaccine as someone in the town and she didn't want to take it from a sectarian warlord. So we know we, we started to have these conversations and then, at least to my surprise, but I think it's shared by everyone in, uh, who co-authored the paper, is that we started seeing the rollout happening through the public hospitals managed by the Ministry of Public Health in a rather impressive ways, I would say, where the, I mean, low rates of vaccination, but at least you know that the vaccine is available if you need it. And that was quite, a, I mean, that would be very interesting to document. What, why is it that the public, Ministry of Public Health was able to play such a role as a public actor? This is how you see, you know, a public response to a crisis being deployed relatively efficiently, given so many variables, and that may prefigure what would be a strong state or an effective state, let's not even call it strong, an effective state uh, be about and what it could do to people. And I think in that sense, the pandemic uh, management of the response or the governance of the pandemic, if we look at the vaccination, can provide us with a quite different picture where we can see that public state operating, which currently we don't really see a lot. I mean, the, the proportion of government actors in the, in the response is strong, and it's, but it's mostly about security and it's more about policing rather than, um, yeah, we missed to mention that there were also curfews being operated and an emergency law that was put in place. So a very strong militarized and securitized response uh, related to the management of the virus in the, in the first month. With vaccination, I, we see it quite differently, I would, I would argue. But of course, that requires much more research that we haven't done. This is mostly based on very preliminary observations we've done because of our interest in this uh, this project, but yes, I mean, Ahmad can add to that, I'm sure. Um, I would, um, I would agree, of course, um, there was a very stark, at least from an observation point of view, a very stark difference, the pre-vaccine rollout and post-vaccine rollout uh, response to COVID. Again, I just want to second uh, uh, Muna's point regarding the fact that this is this, re this will require further investigation uh, so that these claims are, uh, you know, or at least these, these ideas are um, uh, supported by some, some kind of evidence. That, the only thing I, would, I can reflect on here is probably the um, uh, involvement also of the wider uh, medical network. And it's, there, there is a kind of a medical infrastructure which connects to the medical component within the government that um, is often not not seen except maybe for when we talk about you know government subsidized uh, healthcare or other kinds of uh, social security that exist but this was one of those moments when this infrastructure in fact also emerged very visibly. Um, Mona, I'm, you know, referring to the fact that you go to a UBMC, which is the hospital affiliated to the university where we work to get your vaccine. And then there is a common registration system with the government. So it was a very visible kind of infrastructure that uh, that suddenly came into um, came to the fore at, at that moment uh, during the vaccination rollout. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I, I wanted to go back to an earlier point, because um, Mona, you alluded to some data collection limitations related to COVID. And so I was hoping maybe to turn to methods because you put together quite an impressive database for this paper. And 
amazing online dashboard to map the actors responding to COVID and, and the different types of responses. So I was wondering if you could if you could speak a little to the methods of the paper and, and the constraints you faced in, in collecting data for it. Uh, well, this, uh, this is a question mostly for Ahmed, I would say, but I would just say that, you know, we, we started off with compiling a data set, an Excel sheet of actors' responses, and uh, that was the, the base of it all. You know, we started first noting down some interesting observation here and there that we garnered from uh, social media websites, namely Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And then, you know, we were following the news on TV because we were all in lockdown and so we were following some of the main news channels where there were uh, documentation about what was happening in, in relation to the response and we started with a messy uh, inventory of what was happening that we then started organizing in this excel sheet and putting you know listing all actors trying to categorize them that took a lot of time from us to to figure out the categorization and then we decided to document the response types themselves and also categorize those and that was the base of all the work that was done uh, as systematically as one can under the circumstances so relying mostly on available sources online and uh, some observation of, of um, you know, uh, news documentation, plus some minor observations that we were managing to do by uh, depending on where we worked and lived and our little movements here and there. So we were able to capture some instances of these curfews and, uh, I mean, curfews banners that prevented access to certain neighborhoods for certain groups of people at certain times or checkpoints, physical checkpoints uh, that were shared by colleagues in the lab on our WhatsApp group. So we were able to capture a little bit of uh, different geographies from uh, uh, our own little networks uh, that were also illustrating few things that we were not able to see as, uh, I mean, the four of us as, as PIs of this project. Uh, then from that Excel sheet, it was a lot of discussion with Ahmad about the mapping and the dashboard, and I let him continue on that. Um, we were mostly, you know, concentrated, Luna and I, on that Excel sheet in the first stage, and then the, the work developed into the dashboard and uh, that representation of mapping and visualization. Yeah, interesting. Ahmed, would you would you like to add anything there? So just to uh, just to go back to to what Muna was saying, it was really um, a mapping of uh, a scanning of of the media landscape and some um, personal observations. And it, the question that we had, the approach that we had, was very simply: who was doing what, where. And of course, there was the temporal aspect. So there was when and how frequently. These were, if you wish, the parameters for the stratification of our data. Uh, I just want to note some some um, um, figures to uh, in- encourage or or uh, play out my faith, if you wish, in this in this methodology. So with this little sample, I think something like over one hundred and fifty types of responses of actions were documented and then all of these were categorized like when i said it was a very difficult or very complex exercise in creating categories for the types of responses but also for uh, as we spoke earlier the um, the types of actors 
And I would also say that the interesting thing about this methodology is that in and of itself, it becomes not only about who did what, where, and when, but also whether all of this is being publicly mediated, whether it is through uh, conventional media channels or uh, social media channels or even physical mediations like the iconography on the street that we spoke of uh, earlier. And it allows us to, I mean, focusing particularly on this source of material can in fact be a meaningful method in that regard. So the mapping becomes not only about the mapping of responses, but of their mediation publicly. Another thing I would say in support of this methodology, which I particularly find very interesting and that I try to infuse as much as possible in our approach to visualization and mapping in the lab is to insert the mapper and the positionality of the mapper in the work. Um, The fact that we were limited in terms of mobility, the fact that we had uh, access to particular geographies during that time, and the fact that we were particularly also, you know, guided through our own biases towards certain uh, watching certain channels or uh, um, or or scanning very particular outlet, media outlets that of course we tried as much as possible later to diversify and make as comprehensive as possible but we do not remove our positionality from that formula and we understand that a big part of the sample is dictated by uh, by that and it's we don't shy away from these kind of subjectivities in the mapping work if you wish um, it's, it's part of a bigger, bigger representational question that has to do with responsible representation and the premises that sometimes maps make in being extremely objective, scientific, and, uh, and, and all of that, which we refute uh, um, as, as much as we can. Now, that said, um, and, and speaking of the kind of media landscape, the COVID, of course, the period was, was rife with an explosion of statistical representations, right? Diagrams, charts, and geoportals and and dashboards, right? That usually uh, try to uh, assemble information from um, governmental sources or official sources. So the choice of the dashboard came also from that realization, the fact that there is a kind of... chart fetish, if you wish, that was kind of playing out during that period. And we wanted to sort of add yet another dashboard to the already existing ones that were out there that maybe even on a first glance looks like another geoportal where you have, you know, different areas of a certain country that are highlighted with intensities that could look like any other COVID dashboard. But then, you know, uh, upon closer inspection, we realized that, in fact, it is really looking at the uh, at the COVID condition from a very different uh, angle and through a very different lens. Yeah, I, I found that, you know, really interesting because the data you collected and, and the visualizations you put in the paper are fantastic, but you also created this dashboard that was online and accessible. So it was also competing with those government attempts to use maps and, and statistics to, to claim legitimacy and credibility amidst this you know, chaos. So there was also this very sort of activist application of the research. Yes, precisely. So in, in some way, it can be seen as some form of media activism, if, if I may call it that. One thing to note here, of course, is that this is uh, an open uh, platform 
the sources are all accessible through the metadata uh, uh, in the dashboard. And in fact, it is fully downloadable in its, uh, in its uh, georeferenced format, which means it can be readapted and reused for, uh, w- within, other, within other similar uh, explorations and, and uh, you know, can be utilized to answer perhaps different questions and can be built upon. But it also allowed us, I mean, th- th- there was that aspect of it, obviously, but there was obviously the aspect of the kind of dialectic that exists always between research and mapping and our method of work at large. So it allowed us to read data across scales very quickly. It allows us to create speedy correlations across the multiple data variables and to start discovering certain things that really, um, you know, that that can only be excavated on the micro level. Um, I'll give you the example of the fact that um, you, you notice that you would notice that certain operations, such as let's say uh, cash support, would happen by the sectarian political groups through their sister religious foundations, while things like hygiene-related uh, responses would happen would be channeled through uh, supported municipalities. Um, other things like aid, food, and medical aid would happen through affiliated NGOs. So it, it really allowed us to very quickly stratify the data through different uh, axes, if you wish, and um, to look at it geographically or by type of actor or by type of response. And obviously, all of the relationships that exist across these three main uh, categories that, uh, that our data set um, encompassed or, or entailed. Um, so yeah, I would say that the, the, the particular methodology of representation was twofold. On the one hand, it is really flirting with an already existing um, media landscape, statistical landscape, chart junk, whatever you want to call it. But also uh, it was important for us to be able to look very closely and very quickly at um, um, a very complex data set given the short period of time it covered. Yeah, well, it, it's a very interesting methodology, and I hope one that's adopted and, and used in other contexts. Um, but I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it for today. So, Mona, Ahmed, thank you so much for joining it. it it's really been very interesting to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ezra. It was great. Thank you, Ezra, for giving us that opportunity and that platform to reflect on that work. No, thank you both again. And Mona, I know you also recently recorded a podcast for GLD's Governance Uncovered podcast, so everyone can can hear more from you there. Um, And of course, thank you to everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance podcast.